G'day, welcome back to the 19th Tee. Before we jump into today's episode, I just want to remind everyone about Future Golf, Australia's largest golfing community, wonderful supporters of the 19th Tee podcast. They provide access to some of Australia's best courses. You can grab a membership. It includes free rounds, over 90 discounted green fees Australia-wide, a free professional lesson and an ex-golf simulator session. And of course, that all-important Golf Australia handicap, mine's going in the right direction for the time being which is quite nice but the best part about this membership is the price with packages that start at just $24.95 a month you will find no cheaper golf membership in Australia I guarantee it it is the best value golf membership that you will find plus if you're a listener on the 19th tee you can get a further 10% off any future golf membership with the promo code the 19th tee that's T-H-E one night T-H-T-E-E you can spread that amongst your family and friends as well if you like so if you're looking for a place to play without the jacket and tie like me and Marshy Look no further than Future Golf. Head to the Future Golf website, futuregolf.com.au slash join. And don't forget to use the 19th T promo code for an extra 10% off. We want to see you out in the golf course very, very soon once all of this stuff dies down. Stay inside for the time being. But we'd love you to join up to Future Golf. They're doing some brilliant things. So Future Golf, play your way and we'll see you on the course very soon. Hello, friends. Hello, 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 friends. A tradition unlike any other. Oh, oh, oh my goodness. In your life have you seen anything like that? There it is. Adam Scott, a life changer. Mashed potato. Here it, here it, here it, here it comes. This is the 19th take. Kieran Marsh and Nathan Drudy with you as always. Drudy's on what, I mean, some might call it strange, some might call it unique. I call it a downright sad Monday evening because for as many replays as you can watch of Scotty winning in 2013, for as many replays as you can watch of the big cat coming back with, ended with a bang last year, it just doesn't feel the same with having no live masters over the weekend, mate. Yeah, it was a bit boring, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, not, not, not much to watch. Well, if you think the players, Drudes, are struggling, if you think the fans are struggling, spare a thought for the media and the hundreds of mm. them that are usually there at Augusta National each and every year because they too had a hole in their weekend. We're lucky enough to be joined this week by one of them. Uh, he is the golf writer for the Australian Associated Press. You see his pieces in Golf Digest, you see them in Golf Magazine, you see them Yahoo 7, you see them. Uh, on a number of other sites that egregiously don't credit his byline, but we won't be doing that tonight, Drews. I speak, of course, of the, uh, the Australian Associated Press's golf writer based in New York, but we find him isolating in Sydney, got home just in time. Evan Priest. Evan, welcome to the 19th Tee. Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, thanks for having us on. Strange times indeed, like you mentioned. Um, no Masters going ahead, but you know, hopefully that goes ahead in November and we can all sort of get back to golf and get back to uh, watching the PGA Tour and other tours around the world. Evan, I mentioned you're in Sydney. Obviously, you got home uh, before ScoMo really started to ramp up the uh, the restrictions and got home to spend some time with family. But how odd is it for you personally that you're currently sitting in Sydney rather than, if I've got my times right, you would either be putting the, the final few words into a winning Australian piece that would be running in a variety of different media outlets, or you may have already finished and be a number of beers deep with that Aussie winner. How weird is it that you're not at Augusta National right now? <laughs> Very weird. Let's... Let's hope it would be the latter, you know, like punishing off a few few beers at the moment. It'll be 6 a.m. in Augusta. Um, hopefully with, you know, Mark Leishman or Cameron Smith or even Adam Scott maybe winning a second green jacket and, and partying at his place. But, 
yeah, it, it's very strange. I should be in, you know, not, and it's not just about me, but I, I should be in Augusta at the moment. Hundreds of media from around the world should be in Augusta and kind of kicking off major season. Uh, yeah, it, it was really strange to kind of just the way it unfolded in what, in what felt like kind of 48 hours from uh, during the Players' Championship. We were a bunch of riders. We were out to dinner um, in the kind of Jacksonville area. And uh, that's when the NBA, that kind of Utah Jazz game, you know, shit really hit the fan. And all of a sudden the NBA was cancelled and then it felt like the sky was falling. And then by Friday morning, we were sort of all packing our bags and the players were packing their lockers. And, and I was off to Australia within a matter of four or five days. So strange times, but really hoping the tour gets back to um, playing, you know, sort of maybe early June. Although I think that's a bit unrealistic. It might be August at this stage, but... Yeah, we'll, we'll get through it. We'll sort of, uh, you know, in the media, we have to think creatively. We have to think outside the box and come up with different stories and reflect and go forward and speculate. But, um, yeah, mate, there are worse places in the world to be isolating than Sydney. Do you feel as though, and I mean, obviously the Masters um, short of the Open Championship is the jewel and the crown of the golf calendar. And for many, say, casual or once a year observers, it is the tournament that they watch. Obviously, you know, we had uh, the players, the, the fifth major, as they call it, called off halfway through, had a variety of different events postponed or cancelled altogether in, in the interim. But do you feel as though it really sunk in for people this week without the Masters, you know, the traditional start of the uh, the, the spring calendar there in the United States of all sports, it really may be hit home for, for sporting fans with, with the absence of the Masters. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it definitely hit home when it first happened, you know, because it's just nothing. It's, it's so unprecedented. Golf has, hasn't been suspended like this in a long time. The last time it was suspended even remotely was immediately after 9-11, but even that was only for two weeks. So, um, yeah, it, it really kind of hit home this week that, you know, the majors season won't be kicking off um when it when it was scheduled to and um everyone was kind of you know tearing their hair out and trying to come up with speculative masters and and different things to try and fill the void but yeah it, it feels strange and it definitely um hit pretty hard this week mate how do you assess uh the pga tour's handling of the the whole situation um obviously there's been quite a few criticisms thrown around but um the the nature of the changing beast was that it was uh, coronavirus was different hour to hour. So, how do you assess retrospectively P- the, the the PGA Tour's handling of the the whole situation? Yeah, I thought it was pretty good to be honest. Like it's 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 just so unprecedented. There's no plan or there's no scoring out of ten or a hundred on how you sort of can handle these things because we just haven't ever had a pandemic like this. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, you know, from being there at TBC Sawgrass, I thought Jay Monaghan and, and his team did a pretty good job of um, trying to have the tournament at least go ahead, um, but at the same time monitoring the situation and doing the best thing for, for fans and players and, and media and officials and tournament officials. And um, the only thing that surprised me was was that they announced on the Wednesday night um, that the um, that the sorry Thursday morning that the players was was going to go ahead um, but without fans from the Friday onwards and I just thought that was a little bit strange. I, I thought they knew that they were going to come to that decision before the first tee shot was hit on Thursday so why not just have the whole tournament without fans and potentially they, they could have even finished the whole players championship so but, I mean that's that's clutching at straws and that's splitting hairs. I, I think by by and large they did a pretty good job and Jay Monaghan was it's probably the toughest thing that he's been dealt in his in his tenure in, um, in, the, in the commissioner's chair and it sort of comes right after the the Premier Golf League, so he's he's had a like a t- I wouldn't say a tough couple of months because it's a you know the PGA Tour not not really that much happens that's controversial or, or tough to deal with, but 
in terms of his job, he's probably had a tough run um, given that he had the PGL, you know, put its head up and then he had the coronavirus. So I, I can't really fault them on how they handled it. Evan, just back to the Masters for a moment. Obviously, we had uh, a number of Aussie victories on tour at the beginning of the year. For in fact, leading into this tournament, um, you, you've got your finger on the pulse better than almost anybody in terms of the Aussies on tour. Who did you fancy coming in? Obviously, um, Scotty, the the winner back in 2013, the only time we've seen um, the, the, the green jacket, at least recently, fall on Australian shoulders. We got teased so often by the shark in his prime, but did you feel as though maybe this could have been a year for one of them? And if so, who might that have been? Yeah, I absolutely. You know, I, I can't remember. Well, it, it certainly, um, I remember riding it at Riviera. Um, when, when Scotty won, it was the quickest to three victories um, in a PGA to a calendar year in, in the history. So it certainly felt like the Aussies were going to kind of converge on Augusta with maybe our best chance ever. Um, but you can never, you can never, you can have all the form in the world and go to Augusta and miss the cut. So it's never a guarantee. But I really think that at, at least two of the Aussies that we're going to send there, two of the five, we're going to probably be in contention come Sunday. And for me, it was Leash. Leash is just so consistent. Um, the way he won at Torrey Pines was just so dominant. You know, like from I remember walking to in, into the golf course at about 11 a.m. Um, at Torrey Pines on the Sunday morning, and he had bird, birdied, you know, two of the first three holes, something like that. And it was just from then on, he never um, took his foot off the pedal. And uh, him finishing second at Bay Hill, he was just really warming into Augusta. And when I look at, you know, sort of the players that can contend at Augusta, obviously Scotty's one of the best in the world, one of the best ball strikers in the world. And he's got that comfort level of having won the Grand Jacket already. But Mark Leishman, it just has such a beautiful iron game and such a great short game that uh, he can work the ball both ways with his irons. He's not the greatest driver of the golf ball, but he's not a bad one either. But um, Augusta is probably the one major where you can get away with missing fairways the most. And yeah, uh, I just really think that he was going to go, go at least go very close to, to winning the green jacket. Um, and, and, I, and I really feel he's ready to win a major championship whenever golf does come back. How's his back, Evan? Because obviously there was some concerns a few months back around that recurring disc injury. And then we know for him now, it's probably more of a, load management issue than anything else so do you feel as though the way that he had tapered into a tournament like the masters and now with this i suppose extended and prolonged layoff it might actually suit him better when for when golf returns oh uh, you know his back is actually much better than it was sort of last year and in the, in the sort of two or three years before that um he, he's kind of worked pretty hard on getting it back and lo- losing he lost 10 kilos after the open between the Open Championship and sort of um, Torrey Pine. So that took a bit of stress off his back. Um, he's been working pretty hard, like I mentioned, with his trainer. And um, he, he's sort of one of the, um, you know, proponents of the CBD oil on the PGA Tour. And that's done wonders for the pain relief and for the sort of oiling up the joint. So um, I really don't think he benefits from, from the break in golf. Um, if anything, he, he's one of the victims because he sort of had that momentum that he may or may not lose. But to answer your question, I really think it's Jason Day that, that benefits out of the break because he really needed probably six to eight weeks off to just really rest, not practice too much, um, not be allowed to practice because he, he's, a, he's a pretty hard grinder. Um, so for him, he kind of wins out of this because he gets to rehab his back without losing any ground on the FedEx Cup or the World Rankings. Where is Jason Day at, F? Because obviously he's been heavily criticised for not coming back to Australia for a number of years. Um, everyone seems to have an opinion about about Jason. Personally, I love the bloke, but but where do you believe he's at um, as a golfer? 
I think he's at a crossroads in his career where he needs to reset the motivation levels. Um, so, you know, growing up, the two things he wanted to achieve in his life were to, to be world number one and to win a major championship. And he ticked both of those off. And, and he was actually quite a dominant world number one. He was the most dominant world number one we had seen since Rory. So um, it, for him, it was about hitting the reset button, but also staying fit. And um, for him, it, it's just he's at a point where he needs to, to reset the goals, to find something else that, that makes him hungry and then to work towards that. So I, I don't know, um, into, you know, how how well he could he could do that or what's going what it, what it's going to take. But um, we haven't seen the the best of Jason Day just yet. You know, he's only 30, 31, turning thirty two this year, and um, phenomenally talented golfer. And as long as he stays healthy, he's got a number of wins left in him. Hopefully, some of those are major championships. But yeah, he just needs to find something that fires him up, I guess. Ev, in a strange twist of fate, you're in fact the second guest that's appeared on the 19th Tee podcast who's played the Sunday Pins at Augusta National, uh, and neither of them have been <laughs> players. Uh, Benny Everill, uh, he was lucky enough to win the same draw that you did, of course, the famed media draw for members of that uh, couple of hundred strong group who are fortunate enough to go on on the Monday, play the Sunday Pins. Talk us through that experience for you, I suppose, um, if I'm Correct. It was your first year at Augusta that you your name was drawn out of the hat. Yeah, that's right. That was 2017, and that was that was my first Masters I'd ever covered. That was my first season on tour. That was my first four months of ever being in the United States. So it was all pretty <laughs> exciting. It all happened so fast. <laughs> <laughs> it all uh, it all happened so fast. But um, yeah, it, it was just it was honestly one of the best days of my life. It was just it was just like a dream come true, you know and. Um, it was pretty nerve-wracking on the Sunday evening because Sergio and Justin Rose looked like they were, you know, potentially going to go into a, a second playoff hole, and, and light was fading pretty fast. So um, I don't know, I, yeah, because the Masters, I can't even remember the last time I went to a playoff. I think it was something like nearly 40 years ago. So there's just no precedent about what happens with the uh, unlucky journalists who are drawn out when it, when the Masters goes to a playoff. Um, so once that was ticked off, um, yeah, it was an amazing experience because under uh, under the new chairman, under Fred Ridley, it's um, uh, they've they've sort of made the media lottery day. Um, their mission is to make you feel like a member for the day. Whereas, you know, previous sort of Augusta administrations, it was more of a, you know, play the course and and whatever, and, and then kindly leave. But this is more about you get to go into the pro shop, you get to go up to you know the champions locker room, you get to hit balls in the range and meet your caddy. So. When you get there, you've only got really an hour from the time that you enter the gates on Magnolia Lane um, to teeing off. So you have to kind of prioritise that. Like, what do you want to see? Do you want to go up and see Scotty's locker in the Champions Locker Room, which I obviously did. And I found it pretty cool that he shared a locker with Gary Player. And then uh, then you go down to the pro shop and, and that's where um, they pretty much change the merchandise overnight. It's like clockwork. They, they get rid of all the Masters merchandise and it just suddenly becomes Augusta National merchandise. And anyone in the golf world in the States sort of knows that if you're wearing Augusta National merchandise, it means there's a very, very strong chance that you play the course. So it's almost like a secret handshake. So you want to get in there and get that stuff and you want to hit a few peels on the range and warm up. And that, that first tee shot, I was, that was the one thing I was thinking about all weekend, you know, like how am I going to hit this first tee shot? I was pretty nervous about it. Uh, and you, when you're teeing off, you're teeing off in front of the director of communications for Augusta National and a couple of members. And then, of course, your group and your caddies. Um, so I was lucky that I just wanted to get the ball airborne and um, got it got it airborne, pulled it a little bit in the left rough, but safely off the tee and, and off and away I went. So it was just an amazing experience where 
you know, tee to green, I was hitting the ball really well, but around the greens, I was blading a couple of chips just because you're so nervous. Like, I, I think the better player you are, the, the more you try to, the more nervous you are and the more you care about the experience. So it, it's maybe hard to play well if you're a slightly better player. But but really, all it boils down to is that you want to, you know, you want to maybe birdie one of the par fives. You, you want to hit a decent tee shot on 12. You want to try and have a go at 13 in two. And then, of course, maybe hit one up the shoot on the 18th tee. And those are the, the few shots that you really care about. And uh, it was just it was just an incredible experience. I, I just wish it never ended, you know. I'm curious, was there any hole that surprised you? Obviously, there are the famed ones and no more so than, than Amen Corner. But was there any hole that when you walked it, it surprised you in some way? Um, well, that's a good question. Um, I suppose, I suppose number two, I just, you know, it, it, nothing was too much of a surprise because I had been walking the course, um, all week. So you sort of, you walked almost every hole and, and you saw sort of everything. So nothing really came at you during the round. But I guess, I guess, um, I guess what, what surprised me was not one particular hole, but I just got an appreciation once I had actually played it, how bloody good these guys are. You know, Augusta National. You don't understand how, how it's it's the world's easiest course off the tee. You know, and I really mean that. And it's the world's hardest course from 100 yards and in. And when you're facing 80-yard pitch shots off tight, you know, um, off tight uh, Bermuda grass and stuff, and you and, and you have to hit this thing within a six-foot circle, otherwise it's it's death. It's it's kind of put so much pressure on those shots that are already pretty nerve-wracking as they are. So that was the one thing I took away out of how, how good these guys are, how good they are at landing the ball exactly where they want to and controlling the spin. Uh, but I thought 18 for me was the one hole where I really wanted to um, to hit one up the guts. And I just thought, you know what, I'm going to let one go here. I'm going to try and hit a cut off that left bunker. And I murdered the golf ball straight up the guts and uh, wedged on and two-part par and and, uh, and shook the, the hands of my playing partner. So, it, yeah, it was, it was so much fun. Uh, not, nothing really surprised me, but I was surprised how much I would actually enjoy it. And I was surprised that, Everything just went so smoothly. We got beautiful weather. It was probably, you know, 25, 28 degrees Celsius, sun, no wind. So it was just, it was just amazing. Tell us about the media centre, Evan, because the few people that I've spoken to, the very few people that I've had the privilege of speaking to that have been there have described it as uh, incredible, amazing, crazy, uh, all these other words. How do you, how do you describe the media centre? Just tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, it, oh, mate, it is just an absolutely um, otherworldly facility. You know, like the, the amount of money they spent on that thing. That was so, so my first Masters that, that I mentioned was um, the first Masters of that new media center. So the old one was was uh, just off the first hole, a lot closer to the course. But when, when you exchange um, how nice this new Masters media center is compared to the old one, you kind of don't mind the little golf cart shuttles that the volunteers take you to and from the golf course. Um, but this thing, you know, like from the outside, it looks like a southern white homestead that maybe a you know a sitting U.S. president would sort of holiday in. This thing is just absolutely enormous, beautiful white, white wooden facility, and you you kind of walk in. There's a grand staircase, and you walk up the grand staircase, and on your left is a balcony um, that you can take your food out and eat outside, and sort of look at the azaleas, and then they have a bit of a to-go fridge where you can grab you know sandwiches and rolls and some of the famous Augusta food like the pimento cheese and the egg salad sandwiches and the Georgia peach ice cream sandwiches. And, uh, and then they've got a full on a la carte buffet restaurant that is kind of themed with the old masters media center that has that kind of tin roof. Um, 
And that that is just like, you know, like you go in there, you get treated like royalty, even though you're just a golf rider. And then, then of course, you go into the to the uh, main part of the uh, media center. It looks like a, you know, like a, a lecture theater at Harvard University. It's beautiful oak wooden desks and leather chairs. And when you sit down at your desk, you kind of got your name placard above you. Then you've got two computer screens. And the one on the left has um, every camera that you could ever imagine at Augusta National. So media get to watch every hole in the back nine and then there are specific cameras for you know amen corner and the 18th hole and all that sort of stuff um and of course that that's outside the broadcast window so there's no commentary on those holes um until the actual coverage starts on television like every everybody else would see and then you've got a stats computer where you can just look up any stat any player profile that's ever played the masters it's just phenomenal it makes your job so much easier to kind of you know write great insight uh, quite quickly so it's uh, it's just a phenomenal facility. One of the most impressive things, though, is when you go into the interview room, um, the the master's credential that you've got has like a an RID chip inside of it that tells you your name and what publication that you work for. And when you lean towards the microphone to ask a question to the moderator, the the moderator knows your name and your publication. So everything on TV looks really smooth and it looks like the um, the members know who you are, but <laughs> they don't know who the fuck Evan Priest is and the <laughs> the Australian Associated Press, but it's uh yeah it, it all looks amazing broadcast it's all, it all looks amazing on the broadcast and it runs smoothly and uh yeah the the takeaway from it is that Augusta National is just such a machine it's such an amazing sports event you know um the way they run it the way the media cover it and, and it just gets bigger and bigger every year so hopefully uh I'll be back there in November well there you will and that's a great segue Evan thanks for for doing uh part of my job for me let's talk about the rescheduled dates and specifically the majors obviously the PGA Championship has been moved from, from May to August. Uh, the US Open is, is in September from June. And now the Masters has been moved, obviously, from the weekend just gone to November. Uh, and the Open has unfortunately been cancelled. Out of the four, which, which major does this reschedule have the, the biggest impact on? Because all of these courses are going to look very different to when they were uh, meant to be originally played. It's hard to say which, which major would have the biggest impact. They all have like pretty equal impacts, if I'm being honest. The, the US Open is one of the bigger ones because, you know, normally that's played as, as summer's kind of heating up and, um, you know, so they can get the fairways of a US Open venue running firm and fast and the greens ultra slick and the rough um, in summer is, is growing quick enough for them to get it really thick. So um, it'll look quite different in September in the northeast and, and hopefully they still play it at wing foot. So it'll be a little bit softer and the conditions will be a bit softer and they won't be able to grow the rough as thick as they normally do. Um, I think the PGA was a little bit of a loser out of this scenario in that um, golf still may not be played when it comes to early August. You know, I'm, I don't have any real faith that, that a, a ball will be struck before the PGA Championship and maybe at the PGA, PGA Championship. So um, I, I suppose when all the, the heads of all those organisations sat down and worked out how they're going to do it, Augusta said... You know, we, we closed our course for, for summer and, and then we opened it up in October um, and we just physically can't have the golf course ready before November. So that so that was their their option. And then um, the US Open could sort of be played any time from August through to November, or maybe August through to October in, in New York City. And then the PGA sort of, um, yeah, I, I guess being the earliest was, was probably the most unlikely or the one on the shakiest ground, whether it will actually go ahead or not. So, yeah, those are kind of the different scenarios for those three majors. And then, and then the Open Championship, um, you know, like from what I've read and from what I've heard, the, the biggest reason they had to cancel was because it had been an insurance policy. So 
if they postponed it, um, you know, it still might not go ahead and then they still might not be able to recuperate some of the hundreds of millions of pounds that they would have lost by not staging the event. So just like Wimbledon, they're believed to have got a bit of a payout by, by cancelling and, and sort of recuperate some of that money. So um, I'm most excited to see the Masters in November. I think um, out of all the majors, it's probably the, the most that's tied to, you know, the certain month that it's in, the weather conducive to that area and that time and, and, uh, and the colours that, that that time of the year in the US represents. So, you know, when you think about just the Masters and, and green and the azaleas blooming, um, and then you have it in November, it sort of had, just has that amazing novelty and hopefully some of the, the dogwoods are flowering and, and some of the leaves are falling on the green fairways and it'll just have this beautiful colour to it and the course will play differently and it'll be exciting because it's a once-off and it will probably never be played outside of April ever again, hopefully. And So, yeah, that's that's my take on it. I just hope that all three majors go ahead, but at the moment, the only two that I can confidently say that will go ahead are the US Open and the Masters. To, to your point, Evan, obviously it's a situation that's evolving daily, uh, let alone weekly, and, and it would be difficult, I suppose, to, to get any sort of confidence out of um, Pontevedra as to you know the, the status of these majors. But do you get a sense that there's any contingency planning in terms of shifting locations of majors if it gets too late in the year to play in places like New York? Is there any sort of thought in the back of the head, can we shift to the West Coast and still get these majors off the ground? Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't heard too much because um, I'm not over there and, and the finger's not quite on the American polls as it, as it normally would. But from what I read, I, I know that Eamon Lynch, for, who is a friend of mine for, for Golf Week, um, he wrote a piece and he sort of quoted some sources that said Pebble Beach and Torrey Pines were being scouted as a potential US Open venue. So I would trust that he's spoken to a couple of guys in the know, you know a couple of people in the know, I should say. And um, so so if it was to, to be delayed again, um, the... the, the uh, U.S. Open, you know, potentially that could be held in in California. But um, the dates that they've set, this revised schedule, there's not too much wiggle room left because there's, when you think about it, there's still the FedEx Cup playoffs, uh, which which they aim to go ahead. Um, and those three tournaments are all sort of um, in the northeast and obviously in the south, one, one being in Atlanta. So th- there aren't too many holes in the schedule when you think about the Ryder Cup as well. So... Um, from, from, you know, this is a preliminary schedule that they've set and they're holding those dates. If they have to change them again, it's, you know, you'd think one of them has to be a bit of a casualty. I don't know if they could hold all three majors and a Ryder Cup if the dates were to be changed yet again. And, and how do you assess probably, I suppose, <laughs> the most important stakeholders of the players and in, in your conversations that you're having, how are they reacting to what is likely going to be an incredibly condensed schedule at the back end of the year? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, at the moment, they're, they're so desperate to play and they're so hungry and, and starve the competition that they're not really thinking about um, how condensed a schedule that could be just yet. Um, a lot of the guys that I speak to aren't eligible for the Ryder Cup because they're sort of, um, you know, some Australians and South African and Asian players. So they're not really, they won't have a bulk of that schedule. But yeah, it is, it is pretty heavy if you're being really honest. You know, you go from the PGA to, um, to, to the FedEx Cup playoffs and then, you know, into a, almost straight into a US Open and then the Ryder Cup and then a couple of weeks off in the Masters. So it, it's pretty heavy towards the end of the year. But I think at by that stage, the players will be so desperate to play that they just won't care that they're playing six of eight weeks or whatever it may be, depending on what country you're from and depending on whether you're playing the Ryder Cup. 
Evan, I'm curious, you mentioned that you've obviously got that group of players, uh, the Australian players, a couple of South African players, uh, a lot of the Asian players on tour who, you know, you, you get along quite well with, um, always willing to have a chat to you for your, for your stories. I'm, I'm wondering when you do have a story, who your first phone call is. Uh, do you know what you're going to get out of certain personalities? Is there one person you always consistently can pick up the phone and you know they're going to answer and give you a line or is it kind of a case-by-case basis depending on what you've got? What's that relationship like when you're in a position like yours and, and you need to get something on the record from these players? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, there are, I'm pretty fortunate that a lot of people that are involved in Australian golf recognise the importance of um, the AAP golf writer role and that any story that we write goes nationwide and just, if anything, increases the exposure of golf in the media. So they've all been pretty good. I wouldn't. I wouldn't go ahead and name players that are, you know, if anything, a dialer quote or anything like that, because I don't want to take away from how much, how valuable their time is. But, you know, I, I've been, I've been able to call people like, you know, Mark Leishman and, and Ian Baker Finch and Rod Pampling and Greg Chalmers and guys like that that are more than happy to help out if it's a fairly big story. And um, Mark Leishman's always, always a really good one. If anyone, I would say that Mark Leishman probably gets, gets the business of golf better than most people. And, and he certainly respects that everyone has a job to do, whether you're a caterer or a physiotherapist or a journalist. So Leash has been quite good to the AAP golf riders, and I don't just mean myself. I mean sort of Ben Everill and, and the guys before me. So, um, And, of course, um, you know Jason, Jason Day cops a little bit of flack back in Australia for not coming home, but, he, but he's always supported the AAP golf rider role quite heavily and has always been very available for comment, and, and his agent is quite good at, um, sort of ensuring that maybe Jason gives a little bit of extra time to the Australian Associated Press golf writer. Um, so I can't really fault any of the boys over there. Adam Scott's obviously a great ambassador for golf and, and he, he speaks eloquently and anything he says sort of cuts through most um, boundaries and usually creates a good headline and gets people talking about golf back in Australia. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I'm blessed with, with the, the crop of guys that I have and, and girls, I should say, too. You know, Minji's been great. Hannah's been great. Um, the Russell's family have been incredible and uh, we've got some amazing women coming through. So it's pretty, you know, once the coronavirus stops, there are pretty exciting times for Australian golf, I, I must say. Do you get a sense, Evan, with those players? I mean, obviously um, for a handful of them, they might get a taste of coming home, whether it's actually playing a few tournaments over the summer, whether it's taking the two weeks over Christmas to spend time with family. But for the majority of them, life is now well and truly ensconced in the United States. So do you get the sense that, they feel uh, it's important to remain connected to home. And so they're always happy to have that chat to you because they know that it gives them a platform in the Australian press and it gives them a voice where they, you know, they feel it's, it is important to maintain that connection. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I think it's more about, um, for one, you know, that they see how sort of how hard I work um, from, from tournament to tournament and, and maintaining those relationships. And they, they appreciate that, you know, the Australian Associated Press have invested in having a golf rider covering all the Aussies, men and women um, in the States. Um, but also, I, I think the main thing that they recognise is that, and, and I hate talking about myself, but, but that I'm a vehicle for, for Australian golf um, in, in the media. So anything that they say, the, the AAP golf rider can make sure it gets delivered nationally. So they, they just know that speaking to, you know, the, the Australian golf rider in the States who has the most reach is going to ultimately benefit golf. So I think that's, that's their priority is that, you know, just trying to get golf on, on websites and in the sports pages of newspapers around the country. And, um, but yeah, you know, like players have expressed, um, 
you know, a desire to, to have their say heard back in Australia. I, Adam Scott comes to mind. He's he's sort of expressed to me before that he, he intends on moving back to Australia and, and he wants to, um, you know, he, he wants to stay connected with his homeland and the golf ends back in his homeland. And, and we saw, you know, when he won the Masters, how, how important he thought it was to bring the green jacket down under and let, let the Aussie fans um, have a taste and have a look at that trophy that eluded our country for so long. So he's certainly one that, that always will be, you know, will always call himself Australian, always intends on being an Australian and living in Australia. So he, he certainly cares about um, trying to get a message across to, um, to Australia through me, that's for sure. Do you have the dream job, mate? It certainly sounds like you do. <laughs> it's pretty good, yeah. It's, it, it, you know, it's, it's, every job um, has a glamorous side and a non-glamorous side. And thankfully for me, most of it, most of it is, is full of perks and, you know, meeting incredible people and playing some cool rounds of golf and getting to travel from event to event. But, yeah, it can be lonely. Um, there's a lot of travel involved. You're sort of always packing a suitcase and getting to go home to, to New York for a week or so and, and hanging out with your friends and then sort of jetting off again. And, uh, yeah, mate, there, there are um, highs and lows and, and ups and downs to any job. But, thankfully, for me, a lot of it is up. Aside from Augusta National, what's the one course that you look forward to every year that it rolls around and you go, shit, I can't wait to get out to this course? I would say the California swing um, uh, of, of uh, Pebble Beach, the, the Pro-Am, and then driving. Usually, I usually drive from, from there down to LA for, for Riviera Country Club because they're just such iconic courses and it's such a great time of year in the, in the US and there's such an energy about the tour because it's only sort of six or seven weeks old in the year by that stage. And um, yeah, to, to be honest, on a Tuesday, Wednesday, when you're sort of walking around and, and seeing which Aussie players are where and what stories you need to write for the day and then getting to go out um, on Tuesday at the Pebble Beach Pro-Am this year, actually, I was I was um, looking for Jace and I, and I walked out to sort of where the, you know, the fifth hole sort of starts to go alongside the ocean at Pebble Beach and, and I saw that Jace was with... Um, the lead singer of Train, um, Patrick Monaghan, the actor Michael Pena, and another guy that I can't remember his name, but um, he was playing a practice round with them, and, and I was just sort of walking and talking with them and um, watching Jace, you know, hit shot after shot, but then talking to the, the lead singer of Train just about him and his music career, and, and talking to Michael Pena and me telling him as a fan, you know, some of the movies that I, I've enjoyed watching him act in, and to me that was a pretty surreal experience to, to do that, and then to get up to 70 and watch those guys hit sort of half wedges into the green there, one of the most iconic spots on on the course. And that, that to me, just reaffirmed why I love the California swing, why architecturally it's one of probably the best stretch of the PGA Tour all year. And um, and then, of course, you go down to Riviera, and, and in my opinion, Riviera Country Club is, is the greatest golf course that the PGA Tour returns to outside of Augusta National. Um, and then for, for Scotty to win there while it was Tiger's, you know, invitational um, in its first year was pretty special. So... I would say Riviera is probably the number one course I look forward to every year outside the majors. And then um, Pebble Beach, the, the Pro-Am, is a close second. How does Michael Pena hit a golf ball? Mate, he's a really solid player, actually. He's about a, a four handicap. Um, he has a nice short backswing and really sort of rhythmic uh, rhythmic action. And he hits a, a draw on most shots. So he, he was pretty impressive, yeah. Do you get anything from him? Because, I mean, he plays a hell of a DEA agent and he, he's a fantastic actor and a lot of other things. So it is nice to hear he has a, a nice rhythmic swing. But did, did you get any bites from him while you're out there having a chat? Yeah, yeah. I mean, sort of, um, 
you know, he's just he. Any American that you meet, it doesn't matter who they are or what status they are. Um, they're always fascinated by by Australians and particularly if they love golf. So so if you say you know as soon as I say what I do as a job, they think that's that's pretty cool. And you know for for people like you know I came across Cuba Gooding Jr. Um, during um, the the Genesis Invitational and for for people like that who have seen some of the most incredible things and acting in some of the biggest movies of all time, for them to think your job is pretty cool is always a nice feeling and. Yeah, and Michael was um yeah really chatty. It was, was a good chat. I only I only walked the front night at Pebble with them, but he was pretty um, fascinated to hear a bit more about Jason and what Jason is like and how Jason's perceived back in Australia. And and that that was a pretty fun afternoon. I got to admit. I just want to uh, rewind a bit back to you mentioned a couple of our female golfers and and Evan. Obviously, the the crop coming through at the moment um is probably the best in recent memory in terms of the depth we have in Australian women's golf, but. Two I want to touch on in particular. First is Gabby Ruffles. He wrote a story earlier in the year about her passing up the invitation to the uh, Augusta National Women's Amateur because she wanted to take yep. part in what was scheduled to be the first major of the year at the same time. Uh, unfortunately, neither of those events have taken place for Gabby, but she is a player with an enormous future. I mean, only took the game up at 15, currently on a scholarship at USC, one of the one of the best sporting colleges in all of America, and seemingly a player with the world at her feet. Just last week, and named as one or two recipients of this year's Curry Webb Scholarship, but also seems to have a very mature head and shoulders. And uh, you know, and I gleaned that only from that chat you had with her about a decision. So, talk to us a little bit about Gabby Ruffles, the the interactions you've had. Obviously, um, not just a, a famous golfing brother, but a hugely famous sporting family. So, it comes from good stock. Yeah, I mean, Gabby is, Gabby's just like her brother, Ryan, and just like her parents, Anna Maria and Ray. They're, they're just an incredible family, and they've, they've all competed at the highest level in, in the sports that they've chosen. And, um, and the, just the wisdom. Um, the, the thing that strikes me about Gabby and Ryan is, is, you know, an old golf coach used to tell me that you have to have an old head on young shoulders. And, uh, and I've never seen that more sort of in, in an athlete than Gabby and Ryan. The way they talk, you, you'd think that they're, you know, 40 years of age and have been playing golf, um, you know, on the PGA Tour or the LPGA Tour their whole life. But, you know, they're only such young. You know, we forget that Ryan's only 23 and we forget that Gabby's only 20 years of age. Um, they're, they're so eloquent and mature. And, and a lot of that comes from their parents and what their parents have experienced. Um, Gabby is, like you said, you know, like we, we thought Ryan was talented. He, he, he bloody well is. But Gabby, just the way that she's um, gone to the highest level of, of the side of golf that she's competing in, in such a short span after being an elite tennis player in, in, in Australia and in the US. I mean, yeah, you've said it best, the sky's the limit for her. And I remember chatting to Kari Webb at the time and she said, yeah, the sky's the limit for someone to win, the, to become the first Australian to win the US Women's Amateur with only five years after taking up the sport. Just a phenomenal achievement. And uh, and I remember chatting to Ryan at the time and he said, you know, we haven't even seen the best of Gabby. And I, and I full, fully believe him, you know, she's only played the sport for five years and she's already achieved that. And, she has an incredible work ethic. She, you know, Ryan kind of admitted that she she works harder than he does, and he's a pretty big grinder himself. So, I just think that Gabby's going to go from strength to strength. She's going to go from, you know, USC um, to when she graduates to to qualifying schools, and she's going to do that pretty smoothly, I would think. And um, yeah, I, I just think she's going to go to another level each time that we see her play, and she's going to start contending in LPJ Tour events, and then eventually win one, and then start contending in women's majors and probably going to be one of the most exciting golfers um, for Australians in, in the next 10 to 20 years, I would say. 
The other one is Hannah Grain, and obviously they're, they're quite intrinsically tied because Gabby's win at the US Amateur came around about the same time as Hannah broke through for that, that first major, the most recent Australian to win a major. She sits in amongst, on her day, the very best women's golfers in the world. But I'll, I suppose I want to get your take on what you see the next maybe three to five years like for Hannah Green because she has broken through now. She's no doubt probably the leading Australian women's player, but women's golf at the top, whether it's the group of Americans, whether it's the incredible depth of the South Korean players, it, it's it's packed at the top. So how does Hannah Green ensure that she remains consistent in terms of not just winning majors, but winning events on a more regular basis? I suppose, um, yeah, it's a pretty good question. I mean, the, as we see a lot, the, the most powerful women, as the same in, in the men's game as well, the most powerful women are, are generally the ones that are contending week in, week out. And, and ha- Hannah hits a, a really long ball. So as long as she maintains that accuracy with her driver and keeps her short game pretty sharp, she's going to be a, a force to reckon with um, for you know five or ten years on, on the LPGA Tour. For, for her, just chatting to her... Um, I actually wrote a story on her today and, and chatted with her a couple of days ago. And she just said, you know, for her, the thing that fluctuates the most is putting. So, you know, going off that, I, I suppose when she's when she's putting well, she's going to probably win and contend a lot. And, and when she's not putting well, she may miss out on some opportunities. So for her, it's always going to be about working on the flat stick and making sure that she's rolling the rock pretty good. And, and when she does that, she's going to be pretty impressive, I would say, yeah. The President's Cup. Evan uh, was been in the in the news, I suppose, for the last little while. Obviously, having sort of taken Australia by storm uh, when it was down here in, in December, uh, but most recently by the announcement that Ernie won't be returning as as captain of the international side, and, and he'll be replaced by Trevor Immelman. I suppose, how do you assess uh, that? I suppose decision and that choice um, from the international team. Yeah, I think it's a pretty good one. You know, he, he's the, the youngest ever. Um, captain of the President's Cup that, that, of the international team, that's for sure. But, I mean, he, he commands a, a wealth of respect from those players. You know, he's, he's won the Masters. He's competed at the highest level. Um, he's an amazing swing, you know, swing analyst, analyst I should say, sorry, and, and commentator. So they, they all look up to him, um, not in the same way that they would look up to Ernie Els, because Ernie, Ernie, you know, has already gone down as one of the greatest players ever. Um, so he just commanded respect without saying anything. But when he did speak, Ernie was so passionate he was almost like a harmonious dictator in that it was his way or the highway and, and he was going to get the job done and the players just had to put their faith in in what he was trying to achieve and, and obviously the record speaks for itself he he got the internationals to um to, to Saturday evening at the president's cup in the lead with a re- very good chance to win the whole thing and that's all that a captain can really do um, without hitting the ball himself so um I suppose the big thing for those guys is that they knew that Ernie sort of would have signed off on whoever the next captain was going to be. And, and if Ernie signs off on Trevor, then they're pretty happy with Trevor. And then during the during the um, Genesis Invitational in LA, Adam told me that he had um, dinner with Trevor that week. And as the most senior player in the team, it was probably important for Trevor to do that, to signal his intentions on how he wants to lead the team or what kind of leader he wants to be. And and after that, Adam told me that you know I I completely put all my faith and my trust in Trevor as the next captain. And and when Adam says that, you know that it's, it's he's going to be a good leader. You know that for sure. Yeah, it's an interesting point that you, you sort of raised there. I suppose the I suppose the the attitude towards the President's Cup in many ways started to turn a little bit because it it is always seen as, and it probably always will always be seen as the as the little brother to the Ryder Cup, but. 
in many ways, when it was here in Australia, it, it, it generated so much interest in the fact that, as you said, the internationals went into, into Sunday with the lead. Um, it really sort of started to, to say, well, maybe the internationals can actually win this and, and break the American stronghold. So I, I, I agree with you. I think Trevor Immelman's a really good choice moving forward as captain. But I suppose, how do you, how do you see it being in America for, for most of your year anyway? Um, how do you see the President's Cup at, um, as a stature? What's its stature like, I suppose, as opposed to the Ryder Cup? Because it's never going never gonna to beat it because the Ryder is the Ryder. Yeah, that's right. You know, the Ryder Cup is not only one of the biggest events in, in golf, it's one of the biggest events in world sport. It draws tens and tens of thousands of fans. It, it gets coverage. People that don't even like golf watch the Ryder Cup because they know the animosity and the kind of rivalry between the Europeans and the Americans. Um, but I, I would say definitely that the President's Cup um, turned the tide a little bit. It, it, you know, its its kind of reputation is in two chapters, before Royal Melbourne and after Royal Melbourne last year. I think after... Royal Melbourne last year and after the internationals gave it a really good run and after Tiger sort of graced us with his presence, people sort of, you know, stood up and took notice a little bit more of the President's Cup than they had in previous editions of it. So I would say that um, it's, it's got a new life into it, the President's Cup, and it needs to, you know, th- those who run the, run the tournament need to sort of um, try and work out how they can kind of capitalise and, and build momentum off, off Royal Melbourne. And, and it's going to be pretty hard to do that with the coronavirus sort of interrupting things and, if the Ryder Cup doesn't go ahead this year, um, you know, and it gets staged next year, what does that mean for the President's Cup? Does that get pushed back? It probably would because you can't really ask the American team to play two two, uh, two team events in, the, in one year. Um, so, uh, you know, the important thing is is going into Quail Hollow whenever that does get played is, is you know, to make the course set up fair and, and, and provide an interesting spectacle like Royal Melbourne did. I would say that Tiger's not going to be a part of the next President's Cup every indication that he's given is that he won't be the captain uh he won't return as captain and he certainly won't be an assistant captain so whether he would just be sort of there in spirit you know cheering the boys on i don't know but he added such an oomph um to the 2019 president's cup that probably won't ever be replicated so they need to think outside the box in terms of how do we make this a massive event um and, and the only thing they can they can really hope for is that the 12 guys that lined up for ernie at royal melbourne you know come come quail hollow that most of those guys stay in the team and qualify for the team and, and lean on Trevor for some captain's fix because there, were, there was a definite bond that those 12 guys formed in the team room and they all sort of, by the end of the week, looked like they wanted to take a bullet for each other. So the best hope is that the bulk of those guys stay together, qualify for the team, get a captain's pick and, and have that you know, camaraderie come uh, quail hollow. Last couple of questions. Evan, you've been great with your time. I want to take you back to Riviera <laughs> in February this year. Uh, Jason Day, he was uh, testing some wedges um, and he said that it might have a bit too much bounce for a tour player, but a, but an average golfer might enjoy it. Do you want to perhaps finish the rest of the story there? <laughs> yeah, mate. Yeah, you know, I, I said this, uh, I was on a podcast in the UK the other night and, and I sort of said this, that I, I almost wish, you know, given what's happened with the coronavirus, I, I almost wish that the uh, Genesis Invitational was the last event on the PJ tour before it got suspended because for me personally, and, and I hate talking about myself, but it, uh, it started and ended so well. It started with a chip in with Jason's wedge and it ended with Scotty winning at Riviera and Tiger handing him the trophy. So yeah, I just kind of casually walked from the driving range at Riviera as you do and beautiful the sun was shining. There was no wind and I walked up to Jason as I normally do to say hello and sort of see, you know, what he's practicing that day. Is he just going to be hitting balls? Is he going out to play nine holes or whatever? And, 
and he said he was just practicing. So I sort of hung around and waited for him to finish chipping and putting so I could ask him a few questions. And and uh, in that time, a tailor-made rep came up and a guy called Jonathan Trott, and they call him Trotty. And Trotty, <coughs> excuse me, Trotty handed Jason a wedge and said, "Hey, I've, I've uh, sort of like played with this a little bit for you. See what you think." And Jason hit a couple of chip shots with it and just said, "Oh, no, this has got too much bounce." Um, for a tour play, he's like, oh, I don't know, maybe the average golfer might like it because it might help them get the airborne, uh, get the ball airborne. And then he just looked at me because I was the closest uh, average golfer in his mind in the vicinity. And and he said, Evan, you chip one. And, and I said, all right, well, I'll do it. So I picked up the wedge and I sort of laughed and said, oh, great. The first shot I've ever hit in front of you, Jason, I'm sure I'm going to duff it. And, uh, and they all just kind of laughed. And then I lined the ball up. And as I lined the ball up, Jason just sort of remarked that, oh, you know, you got a you know, pretty good chipping stance and, and pretty good um, grip. So I'm, I'm expecting big things here, Evan. And, and I, yeah, just took it back. Sort of decided that I'd play a bit of a chip and run because that was probably the least likely to, you know, duck or shank it or blade it. So I played a bump and run that sort of took a couple of hops and then spun and broke left off the mound and went into the cup. And then we both, we all just kind of, you know, shouted and screamed and raised our hands. And Jason gave me a high five and we were laughing and, and I handed it back to the club and said, all right, awesome. I'm never going to hit a shot in front of you ever again. A few people on Twitter asked me that did, did Jason give me the wedge? And while I would have loved for him to give me the wedge, it was, it was not a scenario where it was already his club and he had the, the liberty to do that. That was more of a, a test club um, by a tailor-made rep. So the, so the tailor-made rep took that back straight away. So it's not going to go in the pool room, unfortunately. Evan, one final one, as, as Nath said, you have been very generous with your time, but I, I think this may well be the most important question we've asked you this evening. And, and ironic too, because uh, we said before we started recording, this is not like 60 minutes, but this is a pretty important important question. I want you to tell me about the day you met your biological father, John Daly. <laughs> yeah, I, I always joke about that. Um, but yeah, that, that was that, that was pretty special. You know, I'm more, I've, you know, since since I was a kid, um, two golfers that I admired um, were uh, were Tiger Woods and John Daly, and um, so it was it was pretty special that that first Masters I covered. One of the things I wanted to tick off that week was to to meet John Daly, and of course, the only way you can do that is to go into the car park at Hooters and buy something to get it signed. So I walked up and bought a grip it rip it trucker hat for twenty five US dollars and got the signature and um, had a chat with him, and and he was you know pleasant. He's he would have signed 2,000 autographs that day. But, you know, for me going there at 6 p.m. at night, he was, he was pretty pleasant. And he said a couple of words and he heard the Aussie accent and he and he, he joked something about Australia. I can't even remember what it was, but he, he said, I've always had a good time down in Australia. He's won a couple okay. of tournaments. Um, Johnny, Walker, Johnny Walker Classic being one of those. But, yeah, I just made sure not to bring up um, bring up the fireballs in the water at the 2011 Australian Open at the lake. So as long as you avoid that topic, you're, you're pretty good with JD. How long did it take for Jason Day to overtake John Daly as your favourite J Day? <laughs> uh, yeah, Jay's sort of captured all our, our imagination, you know, when he went on that run in 2015. So um, for me, just I, I, I call Jace JD. So it's, so he's definitely to, to me JD. But when someone tells me that John Daly is the original JD, I certainly don't argue with that one. Uh, if you've been incredibly generous with your time, we really do appreciate uh, your insights, particularly Masters related. It has been quite an empty uh, weekend not seeing it live, but as you say, hopefully we will will and truly enjoy an Australian victory uh, later in the year in November and that you will be 
uh, green side on 18th. Congratulate that winner and we'll look forward to that piece. We appreciate your time on the 19th, Timo. Hopefully not the last time we grab you and uh, all the best for your travels back to the States. Look forward to chatting to you again in the future. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks a lot, guys. It was great to be on the 19th tee and um, best of luck making more pods and, and keeping um, golf in, in the media in Australia. So good stuff.